There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Yes, yes. Welcome into another edition of the Tim McKernan Show here on the Inside STL Podcast Network from the HomeLoanExpert.com studios. I am your host, Tim McKernan. And this week, we go into the entrepreneurial world. And I, and I want to do more of these, um, you know, maybe not like every week or anything like that. But uh, I love these stories because entrepreneurs always have a backstory um, for how it went from an idea to usually a huge success story. And uh, and that's who we will be having on the program. Uh, I'm looking forward to talking with Ryan Kelly, our sponsor, the HomeLoanExpert.com studios. His story is incredible. That's a local story. The story we have today is a global story. And that story is Bill Rasmussen, the gentleman who founded, started, and uh, still to this day uh, observant, for, at the very least, on ESPN and how it all came to pass is an incredible story in what is used as cliche, but in this case, I think many would agree, typifies the American dream. Uh, It was the byproduct of him getting fired and it was a gamble, but he saw something that others weren't doing and uh, was able to execute it. And what took place in order to get it there is something that enamored me as I heard him tell his story. Uh, So Bill Rasmussen, the founder of ESPN, our guest today on the Tim McKernan Show from the HomeLoanExpert.com studios, Ryan Kelly, as I mentioned. I can't wait to have him in. And I'm sure some of you are going, okay, Ryan Kelly, I see him on TV. I don't really, you know, I mean, you're going to have an advertiser on. You're just having him on because he advertises. And I get that. I think if I were in your position... I would think the exact same thing, honestly. So I have no problem with that. Let's be honest about the whole deal here. But uh, Ryan's story, not only I think would you find it to be incredibly entertaining, but also inspirational. I know a lot of people wonder about getting into uh, being their own boss and taking that chance. And the first step is the scariest one. So when you hear people who have done it and you hear their stories and you realize from where it starts to what it becomes, then you see that it is possible. And uh, Ryan Kelly certainly would fall into that category. And now, I mean, his name is synonymous with quality in the home loan industry. HomeLoanExpert.com. So many people dealing with credit card debt. Well, there's a way out of it. A cash out refi with Ryan Kelly and the HomeLoanExpert.com team. Uh, right now, with home values as high as they are and interest rates as low as they are, take advantage of that. Get that money out of your home pay off the credit card, and then start clean. You can do that with the HomeLoanExpert.com team, Ryan Kelly and his incredible staff at the HomeLoanExpert.com 
team, the sponsor of our studios on the Tim McKernan Show. And James Carlton, James Carlton State Farm Insurance Agency. What a job he is doing, and our audience is certainly giving him a call. 314-961-4800. I would encourage you to do the same. I would encourage you to make the switch to James Carlton uh, because they do the work for you. But why would you make the switch? Why would you bother going to carltoninsurance.net or calling 314-961-4800? Fair question. Here is my answer. James Carlton uh, is not even my insurance agent. You go, why isn't he your insurance agent? Well, because I have an insurance agent who is part of his insurance agency and he's been with us for years and it's frowned upon for other insurance agents to take other insurance away under the same umbrella of State Farm. That's the reality of the whole deal. Uh, and it's not like I'm mad at my insurance agent or anything like that. It's just the, the, the way that things are. You're not going to have State Farm agents taken from each other. It's frowned upon inside the company. Hey, everybody gets it. That's the same way in any insurance agency. But what about this? What about this? Just when I have a couple questions where he hears me talking about something on the air and then I bounce it off him, it's instantaneous with the responses. And I don't know about you, uh, and maybe some people don't really care, but for me, I need somebody that... I know is going to get back to me, especially on something as important as insurance. And sometimes it's just a question, but getting an answer, first of getting a response, like, okay, great. I know this guy's locked in, but that secondarily that, you know, this is the insurance on your home, the insurance on your car. And to know that you've got somebody who you can count on for something that's that important, that's huge. And it's not just him. He intentionally went out of his way to make sure that he employs enough people so that when you call during business hours at 314-961-4800, you're going to get somebody answering your call so you know that you're not going to be going, oh my, I have a major problem here and I don't know when I'm going to hear back from my insurance agent. That's at his cost, but he does it because he believes it's the right way to run a business. And that's why people are making the switch. CarltonInsurance.net, 314-961-4800, James Carlton. State Farm Insurance Agent. And Johnny Landoff, Chevrolet, the Highway 270, Washington, Elizabeth exit. That's where you will find Johnny Landoff, Chevrolet, or online 24 hours a day, 365 days a year at Landoff.com. Johnny Landoff, Chevrolet, a great sponsor of this program. My wife got her car, and where we will be getting our cars going forward. Johnny Landoff, Chevrolet at Landoff.com, Highway 270, and the Washington Elizabeth exit. All of these sponsors make all of our conversations possible. We're incredibly grateful for them, incredibly grateful for the audience listening and subscribing on iTunes, wherever you may podcast. New interviews up every Monday, new questions from the audience up every Thursday. And today we bring you our new interview and our guest, ESPN founder, Bill Rasmussen. I saw a tweet a couple of weeks ago, it might not even have been a couple of weeks ago, and you were talking about on this day, it was 40 years ago today, on May 26th, Saturday of Memorial Day weekend, I was fired by the WHA, New England Whalers, and that led to a, quote, crazy idea of nothing but sports 24 hours a day, seven days a week on cable TV. The experts scoffed, but it worked. And the ESP network, ESPN, was born. It's amazing how things like that can lead to what you wound up starting and building. So if you could, Bill, take me back to 40 years ago on May 26th, 1978. 
Well, Tim, it was uh, a nice day to play golf. The, the <laughs> hockey season had just ended. I was working for the WHA, the World Hockey Association, came in to challenge the National Hockey League four years earlier, and um, I was. they had a team in Hartford. I was working for the team in Hartford. They missed the playoffs. They had been the playoff team in this secondary league, as the, as the NHL referred to it. Uh, and so they fired everybody in the front office. Uh, they had a bad season, and and late in May, when the playoffs were over, when their I forgot what the name of their champions, Avco Cup or whatever it was, mm-hmm. was determined, teams began to you know look forward to next year and all those things. Well, since the Whalers had a rather volatile owner in the name by the name of Howard Baldwin, the name that that he went out to become an owner of the Pittsburgh Penguins eventually. Um, but he was he was really disappointed, and as a result, the entire front office got fired. Ticket manager, PR guys, everybody, including me. I was a communications director. But I had also been working with uh, Gordy Howe was playing with the Whalers at that time, along with his two sons, Mark and Marty, and his wife, Colleen Howe, had set up something called Howe Enterprises, and so I was named the executive director of Howe Enterprises to uh, help you know, promote all things Gordy Howe and family. And so Howard asked, Colleen Howe to call me and fire me. I didn't know any of this was happening behind the scenes until that morning. I get the phone call and Colleen says, hi, Bill, how are you? And I said, I'm fine. She said, well, I'm, and she was obviously nervous. She said, I, uh, well, I, you know, I, I, I really didn't, I'm stumbling all over. And she said, I didn't want to do it this way, but Howard doesn't want you back. Neither do we. And I have to catch an airplane. Goodbye. Oh, wow. Call Howard, call Howard Monday morning. Now, if you reflect back then, of course, things were a little different. I don't think, HR rules today would allow that <laughs> right, right. of, a, of a dismissal, but it was kind of, so, you know, and she just said, goodbye, that's it. And there I was, I'm looking at the phone, wondering if anything else is going to come out of it. <laughs> By the way, they were phones hanging on walls in those days, sure. no cell phones. <laughs> but yeah. she, so I thought about that and I said, well, should I play golf or not? You know, and I said to my wife, I think I'm going to play just to kind of see what happens. You know, got to digest this a little bit, and so I didn't play very well, obviously. Sure. But anyway, on mo- on Monday, I called Howard, and I said I spoke with Halloween. He said, "Good." I said, "You want me to come in?" He said, "What for?" I don't. If you if you don't agree with it, and he got very very uh, negative, he said, "I won't even bother you to send your your severance check." Goodbye. Wow. So I decided. So I decided it was it was ugly. Ugly is probably the nicest word to come <laughs> up with. But we had been on the business side of it while I was with the Whalers. Uh, cable television was really uh, emerging in the 70s. I had been in the television business since 1965 in Massachusetts. And cable television was really nothing more than a relay station. Uh, the monthly fee was 5 to $7, a little different than today mm-hmm. for cable owners. And uh, it was heavily regulated. And there was uh, all kinds of rules where they couldn't compete. They had to carry these uh, over-the-air networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, in a local area. And so it was, you know, a kind of an education learning about cable by accident, you might say. And uh, along came HBO doing some movies at night in the uh, early 70s. But the real trigger that started all of the interest and what led to my interest when I was with the Whalers was in 1976, 
December of 1976, RCA launched their first satellite, SATCOM-1, and it was flying around half empty for three years. I didn't know that, of course, at the time. But when Howard and Colleen decided that I was no longer going to work with the Whalers, I was uh, acquainted with a gentleman who wanted me to do a postseason wrap-up and a preseason for the following year prediction for the New England Whalers. And uh, that was supposed to happen that that following week, right after Memorial Day weekend. Mm. And so I called him and said, Ed, I don't think you want to talk to me. I'm not very interested. He said, well, you got to talk to me. I don't have anybody else to talk to. <laughs> well, as it turned out, his office was in, he was renting some space from United Cable in Plainville, Connecticut. And so I went out to meet him and we talked. He introduced me to the general manager. And over the next day or two, I, you know, obviously we had no no show to do. But we we talked and said, I wonder if Jim and the cable guys here in Connecticut, and I really, I, I don't know if people listening would know that back in 1979, uh, 80, there were only about 12 and a half million households in the entire country that had cable television. Wow. And there were only, and there were only five franchises in the state of Connecticut. Of course, it's a small state, but still. The biggest subscriber base was, was United Cable, where this fellow was running space. And they only had 9,500 subscribers. So cable television was desperately in need of some something to make it grow. And it turned out that RCA was desperately looking for someone to do something 24 hours a day so they could show off their capabilities. And by talking with the United Cable manager there in Plainville, and he gave me a phone number to call. Well, first of all, a really funny thing happened. He said, you guys have got some interesting ideas here about doing things all over the all over the state of Connecticut, which, as you know, is very tiny. <laughs> but he said, well, we talked to him about doing this crazy sports thing. And I said, you know, we, we might be able to do something. And he said, well, I don't know anything about satellite. He said, but let me call the guys. Uh, and he hosted a meeting. He called the guys. They all came in. And remember, this is 1978, Memorial Day weekend, so mm-hmm. this is probably the first week in June. And he said, Let's let's help Bill. He's got an idea, but we don't know very much about satellite. I think it might be good. What do we know about satellite? Well, I don't know. There might have been eight or ten guys in the room, and there must have been 12 or 14 different opinions. You know, you can rent this for that and so on. The best suggestion was, why don't you pick up the phone? I've got a number for RCA Americom in New York. Call them and ask them about it. And I thought, well, let's see. I've just been fired. I'm a little guy from the south side of Chicago. I've got three kids in school. And who's going to know me in New York City? Well, it turns out, back in those days when you picked up a phone, a lady answered the phone. There was no automated, you know, string of things. Right, right. And you could you could reason with a real live person. And so I told her what I wanted, and she said, "Oh, yes, sir. Just a minute. I'll get Mister. I'll get someone from the Satcom division on the phone for you." And the guy came on and said, "Hi, I'm Hal Parnell. How can I help you?" So I talked for probably a minute and told him. First thing he said is, where are you in Connecticut? I thought, well, you know, my, my instant thought was, what does this mean? And I told him, he said, I'll be up there tomorrow morning. And he came up, and that's when we found out that we could get 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for like $1,100 a day. It was $34,167. Oh, my God. And can you imagine? So we had, <laughs> yeah. of, course, of course, we yeah, we had no money, but that's okay. You know, you you don't have to pay the bill right away. So my son Scott and I talked about it that night and the next morning we called him and I, and I, it was a really funny conversation. As I look back on it, I said, 
because I didn't know I didn't know the terminology, you know, geosynchronous orbits and this kind of stuff and transponders. I didn't even know how to spell satellite, one or two T's, you know, that sort of <laughs> <Sure>. thing. <laughs> so I called Al. He said, you know, let me know what you think. I called him the next morning. And I said, Al, we'll take one of those things. And he said, what what things? I said, those. That 24-hour thing you were talking about? He said, you mean a transponder? You want a 24-hour transponder? I said, yeah. He said, maybe there's a pause, and he said, you do? You really do? <laughs> well, That's a stunning, uh, whole... stunning response for a huge sale for him. Yeah. But, I, you know, I mean, uh, they'd obviously been trying to do this for quite some time, and actually— uh, that conversation took place in June, later in June of uh, 78, and by September they had we had signed, uh, informally assigned a transponder seven. But in those days, nobody, it, it just was inconceivable. You know, we uh, today today with all of the technology that we have, it's just talk about a satellite and a transponder. Everybody knows what they're talking about. There, who knows how many satellites and so on flying around doing things. Mm-hmm. But back then, everything was a surprise. You know, we didn't when we went on the air in 1979. We didn't have any computers; faxes weren't around. There was no email or Gmail or any other kind of thing, other than putting in something in an envelope and a stamp on it. So, once we once we found out a little bit about that, I got really excited, and then we finally decided, well, this is a good enough idea. And on Bastille Day, July 14th, I'll never forget that one. I learned about Bastille Day in high school, but I didn't know it would be so significant in our life. That's the day we incorporated ESPN in Hartford, Connecticut. We became a Connecticut C Corporation, July 14th, 1978. And then from there on, it was a run for the roses. We had to decide what we were going to do. And, you know, the, the common objection, the common question raised, the kind of whatever, was where are you going to ever find enough sports to do 24 hours a day? <laughs> TV stations sign off at 1 o'clock in the morning. They didn't have enough to go through. They couldn't sell enough. It wasn't uh, fiscally feasible to go around the clock 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. And, and so at that point, uh, we had 8,760 hours worth of programming to, to figure out, and my son Scott and I were driving to my daughter's birthday, August 16th. She was down. She was a high school junior, senior, I guess, and we we're driving down to have her birthday on August 16th. And we were talking all the way down about how are we going to find programming? What are we going to do? Well, we finally were stuck in a traffic jam near Waterbury, Connecticut, and Scott said, "I don't know. Play football all day Friday." Here, we were really kind of irritated about this whole thing, and I said, "Why not?" And he said, "Well." because you can't. Well, maybe we can, but we can play basketball. So we started a discussion uh, near Waterbury, Connecticut, talked all the way down to Ocean Grove, New Jersey, all the way back that day, and by the time we got back to uh, Connecticut that night, we had, in effect, laid out everything, including some, we didn't know what, but I had been a sportscaster for years and years, and we only had like three and a half minutes to do all the sports of the day, and the big the thing that came out of that drive to New Jersey, other than going to the NCA and talking about their programming, was let's do this. Another crazy idea. Full half hour of nothing but sports. Sports news. We'll call it Sports Central. Well, by the time we got on the air, a little over a year later, it was Sports Center. 
and it turned out to be a pretty popular program. <laughs> Fun with <laughs> euphemisms. Yeah. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's um, it's uh, one of those things where at any point along the way, I guess if we said, if, you know, if we ever fell into the camp of, well, this will never work. But the more people said it wouldn't work, the more we said we're going to make it work. Uh, and that. then we started looking for money, and people said, you know, it's a crazy idea. You'll never find that. And we actually went to seven major investors before we got to Getty Oil, and Getty Oil was our final. They, they, they're the company that did fund ESPN in the early days. And uh, we found out after, the fa- after we were working with them for a while, the real reason that they got involved was the vice president, kind of fancied himself a movie and TV personality rather than an oil personality. And so he pushed hard to get the money through, to, to get the investment through Getty Oil's uh, board of directors. And they wrote us a $20 million check, and off we went. Oh, we my gosh. They wrote you a $20 million yeah. check. Wow. Now, in 19, that, that happened in early 1979. They finally approved it. $20 million was a lot of money back then. I don't, I don't know what it would be worth today, but it was it was a big deal. And the stories as we got on the air, you know, people kept clamoring. We we tried to get the news out to as many people as we possibly could, and that included mayors and governors and newspapers and magazines and anybody that would listen to us. And pretty soon, fans started calling their local area, trying to you know, when are we going to get that that well, I don't know what the number, the name of it is, but that 24-hour sports station, mm-hmm. when is that going to be on our cable system? And oddly enough, the cable operators themselves, uh, when I tell the story, they were the toughest of all. I mean, getting money was tough and getting programming was tough and all that, but the cable operators, they were just happy. They were basically just nothing but a relay service in those days. They'd put up an antenna, hook up people and collect 5 or 6 or $7 a month, and they didn't have to do very much else. And my, my classic sales story of all time is I was talking to one of the operators in Denver, Colorado, and I was all excited. I mean, I, you know, wow, we're going to give you some local availabilities. You know, you can go down and put in your local pizza shop, the car dealer, whatever, and, and right in your hometown, and they'll be in the middle of a big sports event, a big football game or whatever. But and I'm, you know, I'm, <laughs> I, was, I was flying. And he looks at me and says, why would I want to do that? And I was dumbfounded. And I just, knee-jerk reaction, I said, well, here's an idea. Probably pretty impertinent, but I said, here's an idea. You hire him, he goes out and sells something for $100, you give him 10 and you keep 90 Pretty good deal. <laughs> and, he, and he looked at me and he said, hmm. Well, they eventually became a customer, but they weren't the first one. That United Cable, where we had begun back in the office in, uh, in Connecticut, the, their headquarters were in Denver, and they actually became our first cable major uh, mobile system operator who came on board and we didn't have very many people on the night that we signed on September 7th uh, 1979 but there are various estimates of how many people really saw ESPN and I think it was probably just my parents in Peoria Illinois I don't know <laughs> you know you you do the deal with RCA uh which is is you know so critical but you made reference to finally getting that that check from Getty Oil but what is the thought process as you're trying to 
get money to keep this thing going or to even get it off the ground. And you're going in and meeting with various potential investors and they're telling you no. What are the conversations like? And as you keep getting told no, are you, uh, I would imagine, getting pretty concerned that you might have uh, signed a deal where you're not going to be able to cut the check? Well, yes and no. I mean, obviously, we were we had concerned where we we're going to get the money, but I, I was never discouraged. I always thought we would get the money because the idea was just too good. And I thought that anybody who said no to us, they were making a mistake yeah. by passing up the opportunity. And, you know, obviously, we we thought about all those things. We had to go to the NCA and people after we're, after it all got together and we all got to know each other, the Getty people and the NCA people and RCA and everyone, they said, you were kind of like a juggler, weren't you? You would talk to two of us and talk to one of us and tell us the other two were really making progress. And I said, well, yeah, that might have happened along the way. <laughs> <laughs> I would tell Getty, obviously. Yeah, we're really making it. We have a lot of interest from the cable uh, cable operators, and I would tell the NCAA the Getty money is on the way. And I would, you know, tell the cable operators we have all this wonderful NCAA programming. And and it, it really, when you're selling something, you have to have some your own confidence, but you have to have some enthusiasm and show the opportunity, and the upside for everyone along the way. And you know, even then, even uh, without all of the uh, sports around. America has always been a a nation of sports fans. You love the mm-hmm. World Series. I remember the Cardinals and the St. Louis Browns oh, playing yeah. in Sportsman, Sportsman's yep. Park way yep. way back when. It's, I can talk to young groups. I speak a lot on campuses. You talk about um, different teams that have played in the World Series from Missouri. No one ever says, "Oh, there were the you know the the Cardinals and the Browns." Really? <laughs> Who are the Browns? I never heard of the Browns. <laughs> yeah, nineteen forty four World Series. Yeah, yeah. And uh so I've been a sports fan all my life and I you know, and I always figure you're in the game until the till the final whistle blows or the third out is made or whatever it is and and we just uh, to this day we're still doing things. We've started something new called HTN Sports. It's this is for if, if ESPN was built on the NCA and college sports, what we're doing today is looking at all the small towns. You know, uh, George Bodenheimer, I don't know if you know that name. Was oh, yeah. Retired tra- he's the retired chairman of ESPN. He wrote yeah. a book called Every Town's a Sports Town. And he and I were talking about that, and an idea came up. And so we said, well, you know, there are a lot of high schools that li- would like to have a little more exposure. There's a lot of – I can remember umpiring – men's teams on a Sunday afternoon. And so in their hometown, it's a big deal. They have a lot of fun. And so and with today's technology uh, and all the streaming capabilities, we've started, you know, I don't have anything else to do as long as I'm still alive. So I might just as well start something else. HTNsports.com is what we started. How about that? A whole bunch of things there that you can do. And you know what? It's all about the fans. Without the fans, you know, forget the fans, and they'll soon forget about you. So that's why ESPN is so successful. I think they just keep responding, whatever sport it is, whatever audience it is. And uh, they, today, with all the toys that they have, as, as Chet Simmons, our first president, used to say, uh, they can do some pretty amazing things. It's been an amazing, amazing 
ride, Tim. It really has. Oh, I mean, I, I've yeah, just enjoyed start, sports my entire life. And that's the thing. So I also, uh, you know, I host a, a, a talk show now and have for the same show for 14 years. And I started off as a local sportscaster here in St. Louis. So when you talk about having three, three and a half minutes for a sportscast, I know exactly what you're talking about. I had the people in my ear saying, you got to wrap. We got weather. We got to do the five-day forecast before we go. We both know exactly what that means. So I can totally empathize with the uh, wanting to do more. And we did have an hour-long show. We would do it once a week on Sunday nights. But, uh, Mm -hmm. But I also found once I left television and then started owning my own business that I didn't realize it, that I... I guess was an entrepreneur. Uh, I always had that. I always want the upside. I would much rather have upside than a guaranteed salary. And and some people hear that and go, "Oh my God, I can't believe you'd say that." And other people go, "I know exactly what you mean." So I'm curious for you, was that something that you had always wanted when you were a local sportscaster, when you were working for the Whalers, or did you find yourself stumbling into this entrepreneurial spirit that led to ESPN? Well, I actually, Tim, had, had done it before I was in the Air Force. Uh, I graduated from high school the day the Kore- Korean War started in oh, 1950. Wow. And so that kind of postponed. We were, we were uh, a couple of other guys on our baseball team were headed for Davenport, Iowa, to play in some probably Class D league at that time for the Detroit Tigers. But anyway, <laughs> when the war came along, that ended that. And so I went to the Air Force, and after I graduated from college, I went in the Air Force, and had my when I got out, I worked at Westinghouse for a number of years, three years in uh, New Jersey, and saw the big corporate the way they lurch from right to left. And I thought there there are better ways to do some things. So I started talking. To, I worked in the advertising department. I talked to the manager, uh, department manager, and and we had they had some problems. And I said, you know what? I have an idea, and I think I can. I will guarantee you that um, uh, if you'll guarantee me the business, I'll leave Westinghouse and set up my own business and deliver all of your product that you have, all the advertising products supposed to go around the country. It went within 24 hours of when you you tell me what it is somebody needs. Never more than 24 hours, and so we that became a challenge to me. And yeah. we started in a little store storefront, and within a matter of months, we had a 30,000 square foot warehouse and 100 and some odd people working for us. And we never, ever missed. And the word started to get around. And <clears throat> General Electric called us and asked us if we would do some of their materials for them. Uh, General Foods called one Friday afternoon in a panic. And so I thought, wow, this is really working. And now I can get back to my idea. I wanted to, I wanted to play baseball, but I was getting too old at that point. So I thought, well, I can become a sportscaster. I can go do this. Why not? Anybody can talk about that. <laughs> well, I call. I, do you remember a publication called Broadcasting? It was a magazine, and I guess today's Broadcasting and Cable. But it used to put little two-line ads. Sportscaster wanted, you know, someplace Montana. Sure. Newspaper, oh yeah. No, I, I would look at. I would look at MediaLine.com. That's where I would look for my jobs when I was coming out of school. Yes. Well, same same principle. Sure, except sure. We didn't have the you know we didn't have the online, and so there was one in there, sportscaster, Westerly, Rhode Island, and I was living in New Jersey, and so I picked up the phone and called and said I'd like to come up. You know, he was looking for people to send a resume or have an interview or whatever, and I said I'll come up and see you if that's okay. And he said, Sure, come on up. I said, Wasn't that you know a couple hours drive and you're in Rhode Island? And so I walked in. And he said, You bring your tape? What 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 can you? And I said, No. <laughs> he said. Well, what station do you work for? I said, oh, I've never worked on radio. <laughs> he, said, he said, 
what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm going to be your sportscaster. And he said, well, why would I hire you? I said, because I know sports and I know I can do it. Wow. And he looked at me like this guy is crazy. He just drove two hours to get here. And he, you know, but he said, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to give you an opportunity. He said, I'm putting a new station on the air in Amherst, Massachusetts. And if you'll go up there by the first of the year, this was in September, October when we talked, he said, if you'll be up there by January 1st, help me get that station on the air by April 1st and you'll be my sportscaster. And I was, I did, I did that and I became his sportscaster and that was, went on the air and spoke my first words ever on the radio and April 1st, 1963. Wow. And then the local, there were two local TV stations, and I got to know those guys, and one of them was promoted by uh, the NBC station in town by the owner. He held another station, or owned another station down in North Carolina, and he asked him for a recommendation to replace him, and he recommended me, and I spent 10 years at that station at NBC in, in uh in Springfield, Massachusetts, and while I was there, I did some hockey for the Springfield Indians, and then they eventually became the Springfield Kings, property of the Los Angeles Kings, when okay. hockey expanded in 1969. So it was I just always always thought that I could do whatever I set out to do, and the entrepreneurial spirit. You you said it exact exactly the right way. I, Punching a clock and having a guaranteed check at the end of the week was never, never in my, I mean, you have to do it when you're in, in sure. school, of course. Yep, yep, yep. But, but once I got into the workforce and, and started that business in 1959, coming out of Westinghouse, I never looked back. You got to have that upside. You know, I, for me, I always want to be chasing just the belief that something I could be part of or build something huge. Yeah. And and you did, but you also have to have that belief. You can't go. Oh, I just want to be rich. I, let me see if I can figure it out. You have to have the oh. belief that you can do it. And yeah. and you did build something that forever will be a part of you know not just American history but global communications. That is an incredible thing. So I so I didn't realize initially until I started researching for the interview that you did do television, Bill. So when you go out after you've after you've gotten the deal done, you get the twenty million from Getty Oil. The satellite is ready to go. And you're going to launch this thing. Did you play a role in the hiring of the talent? I would imagine you did, and so you know what you're looking for since you actually did it yourself. Yeah, and actually, it was a lot easier than we thought it would be. A couple of you know, a couple of key people, not on air people, but key business television business people. We uh, hired those. Interestingly enough, during this period after we got. I guess it might have been in April of 1979 when we went to the uh, National Cable Television Association convention in Las Vegas. Following that, we, we our little itty bitty booth at the end of the long row. You know, a lot of big, big people with lots of money were doing things, and we just had one little five-minute loop that we ran on a television set that looked old and decrepit. <laughs> <laughs> you, you probably remember those old sets. Oh yeah. And, and we just told them, you know, we were handing out cards and say, put your name down and we'll, somebody will call you and we'll talk about this wonderful television idea. And we were mobbed. We just had people down there all, all the time. So as a result, we started, and we started advertising in trade papers. By the time we got close to going on the air and come August, we had received some 2,500 audition tapes. Remember Remember the old video cassettes? I, I sent them out. I sent them out myself, so you I know, know exactly what you're talking you know about. Yeah. 
And we had some 2,500. Well, how do you interview 2,500 people? And so Scotty. Oh, my God. You 2,500. Wow. Yeah. People were, you know, everybody can be a sportscaster. (laughs) I agree with that, actually. (laughs) And certainly everybody thinks they can. That's for sure. Well, that's it. (laughs) Scotty Connell, who had come up from NBC and was a legend in the broadcasting business, getting acquainted with cable. And then he just said, write them all up. Send them all a letter and tell them all to come up. Well, of course, about half or 60% of them said, gulp, I really have to do this. They never showed up. Right. Some some showed up and wanted to know, well, when did classes start? And I can remember Scotty looking at a bunch of them and saying, classes? What are you talking about classes? There are no classes here. You're going to audition. Well, that sent out <laughs> more than half of whatever was left. And uh, there were a few obviously good ones. But I remember one guy, and I don't remember what his name was, but he thought he was going to go to a class, and Scotty said, just write a show you're on at 2 o'clock, 2 a.m. And he rewrote his show, and he went in, and you could just, you can probably feel the sweat running down the center of his back as he was getting ready. <laughs> and he, 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 he wrote whatever it was that he was talking about. Because we didn't have videos to put, put in and take up time or anything, and then the, when he said goodbye, he took his microphone off, laid it down on the little podium that we had for sports for sports at the time, and walked out of the studio, took a left turn, and walked out the front door. We never saw him again. Wow. He decided to leave. But one of the guys that came was, and, and talked about it was working at a UHF station right down the street in New Britain, a young fellow by the name of Chris Berman. And he hung around a while. He's yes, still there. Yes, he's doing, he did. yes, indeed, he did. He, he's the boomer. Is the boomer is still? He's bigger than ever, but he's still the boomer. <laughs> did you and see him and go right away? That's a guy that I know we can we can build this thing in a sense around. Well, no, you know, it wasn't. It wasn't. A, there was no individual at all in the beginning that we. You know, Dick Vitale came along in November. We just wanted people with a passion and. And we didn't. We weren't thinking of individuals that were going to build this around or what, uh, you know, anything in that in that direction. It was just sports and the fan were to be the key. And George Grand came along. He's a professional. Yep. That's uh, been around a long time. Luke Palmer had been around a long time. Uh, Charlie Steiner, who's now been working for the uh, Los Angeles Dodgers, Dodgers yeah. forever. Yeah, he'd been working. He was working on WDRC radio in Hartford, Connecticut, and he was one of the reporters covering the New England Whalers. So he picked up the phone and called me and said, you know, if you come out. So we knew some of those guys. Never never really thought about building around an individual. And um, I could, I've talked to Chris Berman several times over the years, and I can remember, I think it was uh, 2010 or 11, he said, you know, they don't know if they're going to extend my contract. And I said, what are, you, what are they talking about? He said, well, now that the philosophy has been for a long time, and they're waiting for me to retire and guys like Vital to retire and so on because they don't want people who seem to seemingly get bigger than the network to be big stars and be the face. You know, they want somebody to be the face of the network, but the network and the fans are the focus, not the, not the uh, sportscasters. So we didn't really say, you know, this is going to, we're going to build it around. It just kind of evolved. And Dan Patrick came along. He was there for a long time. Uh, just, just and Bob Lee. Uh, I just found out. I was talking to them just this past week. Bob Lee is now the 
number two in longevity person at ESPN. He started on September 9th. We went on the air on September 7th. Oh, my gosh. So he goes all the way back. Wow. But it's it's uh, after 30 years. I was there on the 30th anniversary, and we went on the air on September 7th. We had 80 people on the payroll. 40 of those 80 people in that first year were still there 30 years later. The people that worked there just had such a passion for what they were doing and, you know, it's always a challenge. I, I always like to challenge it. Let's let's make this the best we can and start and see where we go. And and everybody was always anxious to try new things. And, and so many things have come out of ESPN technical minds, I guess you could say, and sales and everything else and creating different programs. Uh, it's, it was an amazing experience. Still is. Yeah. I'm getting I'm getting a little older though. I'm slowing down. I can't get to first base as fast as I used to. <laughs> well, no matter what, I mean, you you have built something that is, I mean, a part of daily life for every American sports fan and beyond uh, the U.S. At this point, when you see it now and you know that it came from your mind. Is that something that you're able to wrap your mind around when you turn it on over the years or even today when you'll turn it on and go, this is something that came through my mind I, when I was on Interstate 84 with my son and, and came up with Sports Center. I mean, that's an amazing, amazing legacy. Well, it, it, you know, if I think of it in legacy terms, obviously, you know, it is what it is. But I, I don't really, you know, I'm, uh, I don't walk around and have something on my back that says I did this or anything of the kind, of course. And I can remember some, someone asked me, and I've forgotten who it was a few years ago. They said, what do you think when you walk through an airport, every airport in America, you walk past the, I don't know, the bars that are open right. or the restaurants that are open. And you look up and you see ESPN and everything. You see all those people just watching ESPN. And I said, you know, when that person asked me, I said, you know, I actually had never even thought about that. If there's a game, I'm going to stop and be one of those guys watching the screen right, right with everybody else. But I'm, you know, obviously I'm proud of it and I'm pleased and it's given me a, a really interesting, uh, opportunity, a lot of really interesting opportunities in life. I got to meet a lot of wonderful people, uh, business people, as well as athletes. Some of the athletes are jerks. Some of them are wonderful. <laughs> that's, that's a concise I mean, yet accurate statement. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I shouldn't. <laughs> I probably shouldn't say that, but the, but they know they are. I mean, some of them. <laughs> that's <just the> way <laughs> they are. But you know, I one of the people say, "What's the most interesting thing that happened to you? Who's the most interesting person you have ever met from the sports world?" And figuring that I've met everybody in in you know whatever all these different sports. The actually the the one that was most impressive to me happened while I was with the Whalers. And it's not Gordy Howe, but I was during the summer. The Whalers used to play a uh, schedule of softball games for charity, and different charities would say, "Can you bring the team over, and you know we'll play this day, and we'll we'll raise some money," which was was very worthwhile and, and very successful. And one day we were playing in West Hartford, and we never knew who we were going to play or who their guests were, or if it was just going to be a game. And I'm I was playing third base and. Before the inning starts, you know, the first baseman's throwing grounders over. And I, out of the corner of my eye, I saw somebody walking in civilian clothes, walking over the foul line, coming toward me as I was throwing a ball back to first base. 
And as I completed the show, I turned around, and this guy's now right next to me, and he puts his hand out and says, Hi, I'm Joe DiMaggio. Wow. I about fell over. <laughs> like, like he's 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 looking at me, and, uh, you know, I mean, I instantly, I knew who he was instantly. Of course. Silver mane and everything, and hi, I'm Joe DiMaggio. Okay. <laughs> so we talked for a while. First pitch goes in, and the umpire called a strike, and he cut loose on the umpire, and, and I couldn't believe it. I mean, he was such a regal person in everyone's mind back in the day. And so he was an umpire baiter, and he kept it up throughout the game. And then uh, the PA announcer started the game, and the PA announcer turned out to be Mel Allen, who I had followed in his days in, in New Jersey. When I got out of the Air Force, I used to sit in Yankee Stadium in front of the press box to hear him. Now this is like a real-life field of gonna... dreams you are a part of here. You know, it was just amazing. And then what absolutely blew me away, I mean, DiMaggio was, was that's, that was it. I mean, I still can't believe that talking to you right now, Tim, but Mel Allen's voice comes up and then he's talking about who's, well, I guess it was the, the, the uh, batting order or whatever, and he said in batting cleanup from the New York Giants and the New York Mets, number 24, Willie Mays. Oh, my gosh. And I'm saying, whoa. <laughs> so I'm hearing this voice, this iconic voice. I've just met Joe DiMaggio, and now I'm looking in. And sure enough, Willie Mays is coming coming like coming up the bat, and I had a really odd thought: what if he hits a what if he hits a ground ball? <laughs> I'm playing third base. What do you do? Just say here, Willie, have the ball? Would you autograph it for me? Or just, well, it didn't make any difference. He hit it over the left fielder's head. So. Standard. Yeah, but to your question, I think people who have a passion for doing whatever it might be. Um, it's not work. It's, uh, as you say, you don't think about the paycheck every other Thursday or anything of the kind. It's the, the, the pay and, and the, the return is, you know, I love to go to the ballpark. I'm, I've thrown up the first pitch at game at a game in Philadelphia. I've dropped hockey pucks. I've started NASCAR races and every single one of me look around and all you see are fans just enjoying whatever the event happens to be. It's, it's uh, it's been very rewarding. Well, I have one final question for you, and and I'm tr- I cannot wait to hear your answer because as an entrepreneur, um, I always first off love hearing the story because everybody's got a story. It doesn't matter if you've built ESPN or if you've built something that's grossing a thousand dollars a year. There had to be a moment to get you there, uh, and a series mm-hmm. of moments, and certainly a number of people to help you. So along those lines, having done what you have done and you have been to the destination so many people would love to go to and reside, what advice, what pieces of advice would you impart upon uh, me and the people listening to this? Well, uh, having spoken at many colleges and businesses and so on, that question always comes up. And I, I... because I'm in the te- was in the television business, I think it's fun to relate back and give people something that's very very easy to remember. And so I worked at an ABC station for a few months and then NBC. And when I look back now and I use it at every single event wherever I am at a college or a business, it's uh, ESPN taught me about short and to the point mission statements. ESPN's mission statements are very short to serve sports fans anytime, anywhere. That's it. My advice for people to 
who want to do things and they have an idea and so on is very simple. It's ABC, NBC. Always be curious, never be complacent. Mm. Hmm. And if you think about that, ask questions. What, what's the worst thing can happen if you ask what do you think might be the dumbest question in the history of the world? Somebody's going to look at you and say, that's the dumbest question I've ever heard. Did they put you in jail because you asked it? Did they hit you in the side of the head because you asked it? Did they open a trap door and swallow you? Uh, absolutely not. And I, I, I have asked so many questions over time in various meetings, and people look at you and say, I can't believe you said that. Well, what's the answer? Well, you might have a point or, or no or yes, whatever it might be. And so I have I have lived by that, and uh, it it seems to work pretty well. And so, and I can't I can't go back and start over, Tim. At this point, so. <laughs> well, uh, it sounds like the journey has been well traveled, so there's no need to start over. And that is great advice. No. Always be curious. No, I, never be complacent. How many times do you? How many times does somebody have an idea and they say, "Well, you know, I I was just too tired on Friday morning. I didn't get up and ow." Oh, but I missed a meeting, and that probably could have been the turning point. Right, well, I know that's complacent. the thing. That's I mean, that's the that, that's that's the thing. When I, you know, I've told the story of how I started up my business, which is now thirteen years old, and obviously it's not ESPN. I mean, how many things are? But but you think about all these tiny moments, like you're telling the story of traveling on I eighty four with your son to visit your daughter, and how you guys are brainstorming on how to fill this time and. Had you maybe been in a better mood, had you not had the traffic jam, perhaps you wouldn't have had the time to come up with Sports Central that then became Sports Center. You know, had you not been fired, would you have been in the position to go out and look for doing something different? All these, you know, is that there's a movie called Sliding Doors, and it shows one the way her life would have changed if she would have gotten through the doors on the subway, and how her life didn't change because she did get through the doors. And it changes in so many different directions because of the dominoes mm-hmm. that fall. And and so the, the, the lesson from that is to seize the opportunity uh, that you may yep. have, which is essentially what you're saying as well. It is. It is exactly that. And I, I, I was, for some reason along the way, I've always, uh, I was born in, during the Depression years. And my father and mother always said, and my father especially, who had to be the breadwinner in those days, and that was tough. And they always said, you know, you can do anything that you want to do. This is America. You can go make things happen. And I remember in uh, high school, and I wanted to, I did play baseball in high school. And uh, I was challenged in the in the classroom as well by various things. And there was a contest came along, and an essay writing contest by the Chicago Sun Times. I thought, I, you know, it's, it was an English thing. I thought it would be a good thing to do. And my English teacher said, yeah, we'll make sure you get entered. Well, wouldn't you know, I got lucky, I guess. And I, I was one of six kids from Chicago that won this essay contest. And we were taken to Harry Truman's inauguration in 1949. Oh, wow. And, you know, I thought, hmm. If I, you know, that would have been really easy to say, oh, you know, who wants to write an essay? <laughs> uh, who wants to do an extra thing about this? And I can remember my father saying, write the essay. Why wouldn't you write it? That's a really good question. Why wouldn't you do something if you have an idea? Yeah. It, it might work. It might not work. Well, that, that turned out to be a pretty good thing. And that was, that was a lot of fun going off. And we spent six days touring Washington and back and forth on the train and 
met senators and one of my heroes from World War II. I were at some event that they had, and I looked to my left, and he's standing there and put his hand out, and he said, Welcome to Washington, young man. And it was General Omar Bradley. Wow. My gosh. <laughs> so, so I'm, you know, and they're all coincidences, Tim, um, but maybe they're not. You know, we're, we do what we we do what we have to do, and we enjoy it. And, and I just, I don't like to complain about things. Instead of saying, let's put off to tomorrow, let's just do it and be done with it. What great advice. And some things work out. Yeah. Some things work out really, really well. Well, uh, this is an incredible story. I've enjoyed the conversation so much, Bill. Uh, thank you so much for the time. I love hearing any entrepreneurial story, but especially this one, and uh, especially the uh, not not just the words of wisdom, but I think your your world view is just so healthy that it's uh, it's incredibly refreshing. So it's just been an uplifting conversation. I've enjoyed it quite a bit. Well, thank you, Tim. I I've enjoyed it. I... It's it's fun for me to to look back and so on and I you know obviously I have some pictures and my kids and grandkids all enjoy it and so on, but I guess the reflection of my attitude toward how it all worked is my let's see he would be my youngest grandson when he was about seven years old we went to a baseball game in Charlotte the old Charlotte Knights I think they call them and ESPN was up on all the monitors in the press box and in the upper boxes where we he walked by. He was probably seven years old or eight maybe. <laughs> and he looked at the picture. He said, oh, ESPN, I hear you had something to do with that. <laughs> oh, Talk about having putting, putting the proper perspective. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you had something to do with that. Bill, thank you so much for the time. It has been an absolute honor and a pleasure. Thank you, Tim. Very much enjoyed it. So there it is. ESPN founder Bill Rasmussen with us here on the Tim McKernan Show from the HomeLoanExpert.com studios. How about that story? How about that story? What if he doesn't get fired? What if he doesn't get fired from the Hartford Whalers? Does he start ESPN? The answer is probably not. Uh, for those of you who are entrepreneurs, uh, I, I lo- anytime I get a chance, and, I, and, it, and usually it's just organic, I'm talking with somebody, oh, what do you do? And then I hear that they have their own thing. They started their own thing. And I'm just, I'm all in. I can't wait to hear because the story is usually, you know, it's inspiring, but it's also just entertaining because if you start something up, you know that you screw something up, plenty of things up. You might totally screw the whole thing up and it doesn't work, but at least you fired your shot. Um, And you learn certainly as you go along and to hear the story of someone who started something that has become, you know, just a monster force uh, in global coverage of uh, sports and entertainment, it's something else. And also, again, just a really positive outlook. Uh, and I think that comes with age and wisdom, but also what he accomplished. So just loved listening to the story. Love entrepreneurs' stories. Uh, hey, if there's an entrepreneur you'd love to hear on the show, send me an email, tmckernan at insidestl.com, because I'll just sit there and I'll just, I'll settle in and just ask questions out of curiosity. Uh, but I think there are a lot of lessons that can be taken from these stories, and certainly plenty there with Bill Rasmussen and what he did with ESPN. Uh, thank you to him for his time and telling his story. Thank you to you for listening, as always. And, of course, thank you to our sponsors, thehomeloanexpert.com, James Carlton, State Farm Insurance Agent, and Johnny Landoff, 
Chevrolet. As always, we welcome you to send feedback at Team McKernan at InsideSTL.com. Guest suggestions, and please leave positive reviews on iTunes. It helps the cause as we continue doing the Tim McKernan Show on the Inside STL Podcast Network from the HomeLoanExpert.com studios.